Hello and welcome to the Pirate Wire Services podcast. I hope you've navigated safely to the end of the week. I'm Amy Booth and this week I'm going to talk to you about a political problem no one wants to happen but everyone thinks is happening anyway. Electoral fraud. From Bolivia in 2019 to Colombia's parliamentary elections just last month, it feels like fraud allegations have been cropping up a lot in Latin American elections recently. In the US, when now ex-president Donald Trump made unfounded claims that the opposition had stolen the election, it seemed to cement fraud allegations as a disturbing new tactic in the electoral playbook. So this week, I decided to take a look at them. Who's been making fraud allegations, the problems it can bring, and what we can do to improve electoral integrity. The first point to make here is that sometimes elections really are fraudulent. I recently finished the book How to Rig an Election by Brian Klaas and Nick Cheeseman. It's a really interesting book that I'd recommend to anyone interested in the topic. The authors seek to investigate the paradox that there are more and more countries holding elections nowadays, but those elections are of worse and worse quality. For me, an important takeaway was that elections aren't just clean or rigged. There are a whole series of possible problems with elections, ranging from minor deviations from best practice to blatant sham elections that mostly serve to legitimise dictators and allow them to reap benefits such as international aid money. So, for instance, it's actually not uncommon to find dead people on the electoral register if the roll hasn't been purged before polling day. The problem is when they appear to be voting. They also make the point that a lot of tactics for meddling with the outcome of an election, such as vote buying or threats of violence, happens before electoral observers actually arrive in the country. Others, such as ballot box stuffing or fiddling with the tally sheets, can quite easily be moved to polling stations where there are no observers present, so they can be quite hard to detect. As a region, Latin America is not the worst affected by these problems. The authors draw a lot of the examples from countries in post-Soviet states and sub-Saharan Africa. For instance, in Azerbaijan, the authorities once launched an app for monitoring electoral results that accidentally displayed the results before the election had happened. And in Ukraine, the pens in polling booths were once found to contain invisible ink. That said, we know that there are still genuine problems with democracy and electoral integrity in parts of Latin America. And with Colombia's presidential elections coming up, now seemed like a good time to talk about what's going on. Perhaps the most notorious contested election in recent years was in Bolivia in October 2019. Like many countries in South America, presidential candidates in Bolivia need to win an outright majority, so over 50%, or over 40%, and a lead of at least 10 percentage points above the candidate who's in second place. As the results started rolling in on election day, it seemed the incumbent candidate, long-standing left-wing president Evo Morales, was leading, but not by a wide enough margin to win in the first round. That would have meant going to a second round with the second-placed candidate, Carlos Mesa. But towards the end of the quick count, the system was suddenly paused. When the count came back online the next day, it showed that Morales was ahead by 10.1%, just enough to win outright in the first round. La misión de la OEA manifiesta su profunda preocupación y sorpresa por el cambio drástico y difícil de justificar en la tendencia de los resultados preliminares. Electoral observers from the Organization of American States gave a press conference proclaiming what they described as deep surprise and worry about the drastic and hard to justify change in tendency. 
It was like a spark in a tinderbox. Morales had disregarded the results of a referendum in 2016 on allowing indefinite re-election, and he was running for his fourth consecutive term in office. So the selection that there had been fraud triggered massive protests that quickly got violent. Protesters dragged ballot boxes into the streets and made a bonfire of them. In the city of Potosí, electoral offices were burned down. After weeks of protests in which several people had been killed across the country, the police mutinied against Morales and the army suggested that he resign. On the 12th of November, he and his vice president offered their resignations and fled the country. Many people view these events as a coup. But what was really going on with the fraud allegations? To this day, some people are absolutely convinced that there was fraud. Others are absolutely convinced the elections were clean and that the Organization of American States fraud allegations were, at best, an incompetent and irresponsible judgment based on bad statistics and, at worst, a not-so-subtle attempt by the US to destabilize a socialist country that had been prospering under a government that was hostile to their interests. Several studies have concluded that the late swing in votes towards Morales is not evidence of fraud at all. Instead, they say, much of Morales' support came from remote rural areas which report their results more slowly, so it's natural to see an uptick in support for him late in the count. You can think of this a bit like how some US electoral districts saw an uptick in support for Joe Biden in 2020 after the postal votes came in, because Democrats were more likely to vote by mail. But skeptics argue that there were other signs of manipulation too. Investigators found that data was being sent to a hidden server and also found irregularities on the tally sheets at some polling stations. I'm not here to provide an encyclopedic account of what happened in Bolivia, otherwise we'd be here all night. As with many elections, it's impossible to go back and recalculate the results because the chain of custody wasn't kept. And in this case, some of the evidence had literally been burned but I do think it's important to drive home just how serious the consequences were. Morales was replaced by far-right Senator Janine Añez, who had previously drawn criticism for racist statements against indigenous people in a country with a massive indigenous population. She was sworn in clutching a huge Bible, and her allies said that the indigenous deity, the Pachamama, would never return to the presidential palace. Whatever you think of the fraud allegations, it was pretty clear that the people holding the reins by this stage were rich, powerful people from the country's elite, and they had a far-right, revanchist agenda bent on reversing the gains Morales' government had made towards equality and indigenous rights. In Añez's first week in power, the security forces committed two massacres against indigenous rights protesters in Sacaba near Cochabamba and in the El Alto district of Sencata. Hundreds of people were injured, and some people were detained and tortured. A year later, in October 2020, Bolivia held elections, and Morales' party, the Movement Towards Socialism, or MAS as it's known in Spanish, was voted back into power in a landslide. Just a few months later, in June of 2021, the second round of the presidential elections in neighbouring Peru saw more fraud allegations. This came shortly after elections in the US, in which incumbent President Donald Trump also made baseless allegations of fraud, culminating in the January the 6th Capitol riots. My collaborator Paulo Rosas is here to tell you about what happened in Peru. There was a strategy from the Peru Libre, 
para distorsionar o dilatar los resultados que reflejen la voluntad popular. In June of 2021, the results of the presidential election gave the leftist Pedro Castillo as winner over the conservative candidate Keiko Fujimori. However, the difference between the two candidates was just 0.25%, almost 44,000 votes over an electoral list of more than 25 million voters. This prompted Fujimori's party, Fuerza Popular, to call fraud and submit a series of appeals to annul the vote of more than 800 polling stations. Keiko is the daughter of Peru's condemned former dictator Alberto Fujimori, and these allegations were especially polemic because she had lost second rounds in 2011 and 2016 before this one. The fraud claim was backed by various politicians from parties traditionally linked to the right, as well as the Peruvian writer and Nobel laureate Mario Vargas Llosa. All of them had expressed their rejection for Castillo and for the possibility of his victory. For several weeks, there were different mobilizations, especially in Lima, for and against the results of the runoff. Finally, just a week after the presidential inauguration, the Peruvian electoral jury validated Castillo's victory. Claims of irregularities raised their head once again in Colombia last month, when it emerged that hundreds of thousands of votes for the left-wing Pacto Histórico coalition had not been counted. When officials identified these votes, right-wing ex-president Álvaro Uribe cried fraud. To understand what's going on in Colombia, I spoke to Sergio Guzmán of the Bogotá-based political risk consultancy Colombia Risk Analysis. What occurred during the congressional elections has an antecedent in the 2018 presidential elections. There were a couple of egregious examples where poll workers mislabeled and accounted more votes for President Ivan Duque. Now, there's no way that President Ivan Duque could have lost that election, but the seed was planted that the ballots were going to be messed with in this election. Then what happened this year is that the selection of the poll workers was changed completely. New individuals were put in these positions with much larger skepticism of how to fill out the ballots. What we had was also messages from candidates saying, You, as a voting judge, have to put asterisks in all of the boxes where no votes are recorded to ensure that no votes are stolen from us. And at the same time, the government was saying, leave the remaining fields in blank. There's cases of people who did not follow the government's instructions and put asterisks in the whole thing. And asterisks makes it more difficult to scan the E14 forms, which are supposed to be the initial count of the vote. Then after election day, the votes are all again counted and brought to Bogota, where recounts can take place. And in the design of the form, at least one party, the Pacto Histórico, Their spot was at the bottom of the form. So when judges had to scan the paper, sometimes they missed the bottom. I cannot say whether this was intentional, but it happened. After election day, 
when parties were counting the votes, the Pacto Histórico realized that they had zero votes in 25% of the tables. And that is a complete anomaly because as the highest polling party, it's just unthinkable that there were 25% of the tables where they won absolutely zero votes. The government ran the tables again and they found a deficit of 390,000 votes in favor of the Pacto Histórico. And that accounts for three additional seats in the upper house. And so the Pacto Histórico went from having 16 senators to 19 senators. However, this was all done within the time frame of the official count. It's not that there was fraud. It is design flaws, incompetence and lack of training from poll workers and inherent communications flaws. Now that the votes have been counted, the Pacto Histórico has the right amount of votes. However, they're now putting in doubt the legitimacy of the entire affair. Pacto Histórico is a left-wing coalition that encompasses agricultural parties, Afro-Colombian parties, Afro-Indigenous parties, and these are all left-wing parties. And they're led by Gustavo Petro, who's the leading presidential candidate representing a left-wing agenda in Colombia. Okay, so could you tell us a little bit about who is claiming that the election was fraudulent? Because I understand there's been some of this going on on both sides and that there are some issues with people saying they won't respect the election results. Absolutely. We had essentially both members of the Pacto Histórico say they had this vote misallocation and they held it up as proof that the election was stolen from them. And they said, under the current president, under the current registrar, we will not get a fair deal. Unfortunately, there are statements of the registrar who said in the past, you know, if you don't think that this election is going to be legitimate, don't run at all. There's just so many communications blunders from the registrars on the day of the election, their app and their website went down. And instead of saying, you know, we have a lot of people consulting the website, they immediately said, you know, Russians hacked us and we are questioning the, the legitimacy of, of our cyber defenses. That was one, one thing. And then on the right, former president Alvaro Uribe, his party contracted quite significantly, both in the House and in the Senate. And that's a lot to do with growing dissatisfaction with the status quo, reducing approval rates for President Duque, who's around 30%, and not at all to do with electoral fraud. But since the Pacto Histórico won so many seats, former President Alvaro Uribe said, there's no way that the left is this popular in Colombia. It must have been fraud. And what kinds of risks does it pose when people do this? Because we're looking forward to the May presidential elections in Colombia, right? And this is coming at a time when the violence in the Colombian countryside is pretty bad. We know in general that contested elections can spark outbursts of political violence. So what risks do you see in the current context? So, number one, I do think that there is a risk of violence as part of the election. We've had 
attacks by the ELN and other insurgent organizations addressed at state targets. We've also seen right-wing paramilitary organizations target left-wing candidates, particularly in community organizations, who have said that there's not enough guarantees for them to participate in politics. We've also seen, and this was a, a new thing for Colombia, there are 16 special seats for the lower house that have been assigned to victims' districts. And in some of those districts where allegedly traditional political parties were barred from participating, nine out of the 16 candidates had ties to some of these traditional parties. And so other candidates for these districts, competitors, contended that they couldn't freely participate in elections. So that, on one hand, is one of the major electoral constraints. This sets a, a negative precedent for political participation going forward, particularly in rural areas and areas that are affected by conflict. What I see very likely to happen is if the electoral results are close, the loser is not going to accept the results. And that is a risk we ought to be very concerned about. What is electoral integrity usually like in Colombia? There is quite a bit of skepticism about the legitimacy of our electoral system. But there's never necessarily been a situation where the loser of the election um, since 1991 has called a fraud on, on behalf of the winning candidate. We had a case of very egregious electoral fraud in 1972, but that was in the 1970s. Um, I would say in, in, in the most recent 30, 35 years, there's not been cases of egregious electoral fraud that warrant you know, public outcry or a call from the loser about the legitimacy of the race. These three examples show that there's a real variety of experiences with fraud allegations and every case is different. But what conclusions can we draw from it all? To answer that, I spoke to Dr. Ariadna Gaixo, independent researcher in political science with Argentina's National Scientific and Technical Research Council. From Keiko Fujimori to Donald Trump, there's a sense that alleging electoral fraud is a strategy that's growing both in Latin America and elsewhere. Do you think that's true? And do we know why it's happening? This is not a new trend, not only in Latin America, but also in other parts of the world. And there is a wide range of circumstances in which negatively affected or defeated politicians might claim that the outcomes are unreliable, especially in those cases in which distances between each other are very Tight. However, it is necessary to make a difference between cultural or socio-cultural foundations and those coming strictly from the electoral system, which can produce quite obvious biases in some cases, but are not likely to be qualified as irregular. For example, the United States of America, the country considered the example of uninterrupted democracy for more than two centuries, has one of the most biased electoral systems known. 
This ranges from the district level to the national level through the phase of party primaries, where even the basic democratic principle according to which whoever receives the most votes became the winner is not respected. On the other hand, in some of the Latin American countries that constantly undergo these kind of situations, there are two remarkable aspects. One, central power control, and two, clientelism. In contexts where corrupt political practices are culturally entrenched and where it is known that the ties between politicians and voters are based on mercantile exchanges or when the same party controls office for a very long time and it is very difficult for challengers to receive enough votes to finally win the election, in these scenarios, when a popularly supported candidate loses by a narrow margin against an incumbent or a member of a majority party, it is plausible to see there a fraudulent maneuver, even if it is not real. Therefore, it is understandable for the losing candidates to resort to all possible instances to reverse the result. This is not the case with Keiko, but the one with AMLO in Mexico in 2006. How much do we know about the circumstances in which politicians decide to make these allegations? There are some cases where politicians threaten or claim in advance that they will suffer fraud. That means that they are preparing public opinion not to concede victory to the winners, often urging their followers to rebel or resist what they conceive of as a great injustice. And are there any common political characteristics among figures who make electoral fraud claims? They are usually associated with what is commonly referred to as populist politicians, who present themselves as defenders of inconvenient interests and as opponents of the political establishment. Therefore, they argue that there is a powerful machine that wants to prevent them from holding office. This is obviously often false, as in the example of Trump or Fujimori, but it is part of the rhetoric of this type of politician. Fraud allegations can provoke major outbursts of political violence, but this doesn't always happen. So what factors suggest that fraud claims could spark wider social unrest? And can we see this kind of conflict coming? As I said before, it has to do with the context in which this happens, with the support that the defeated candidate has, and with the predisposition of society to rebel against a seemingly unfair result. What can we do to improve electoral quality in the region? Democratic stability is always at stake. I think that a common effort is needed to ensure that the idea of free and competitive elections is not just an abstract symbol of pluralistic democracy, but a real aspect of the daily life of citizens. This is a really complicated problem and there are no easy answers. Brian Klass and Nick Cheeseman, the authors of How to Rig an Election, suggest that electoral integrity would be improved by using more civil society and independent domestic groups to monitor elections. They also recommend educating voters about vote buying, fake news and spotting rigging, 
as well as establishing independent bodies to determine electoral zones, which would prevent gerrymandering. But as we saw with the capital riots, fraud allegations can have deadly consequences even when there's no reason to believe the polls were fraudulent. All those of us paying attention to the election campaign in Colombia are hoping that the elections will run smoothly on the 29th of May, that the losing side will accept the results, and that it won't end in political violence. At Pirate Wire Services, we'll be bringing you more news from the campaign as it continues. But for now, I hope this has helped you to understand some of the factors at play when politicians cry fraud. You've been listening to Pirate Wire Services podcast. I'm Amy Booth. To stay up to date, subscribe to our newsletter at piratewireservices.substack.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at pirate underscore wire. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.